All right, welcome everyone. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. I heard they left. Father, thank you for this time together again when we could look into your word and understand how it's come to us. And we're thankful, Lord, that uh, as we prayed before, that we have the Bible available to us in ways that most Christians throughout history have not. Our own private Bible, multiple Bibles. So we know with with this uh, amount of blessing that comes to us, we have great responsibility. So give us, Father, the right spirit and the right kind of obedience that we should seek to obey what we read and study and learn in our own study and as we're the word is proclaimed to us in our church and other places. Bless our time together tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Yeah, I think Gordon was just asking, uh, you know, it comes kind of a, as a little bit of revelation sometimes that uh, that most people throughout history have never had, a, didn't have an individual Bible <clears throat> until the printing press comes along, 15, 1450. It was handwritten manuscripts, just handwritten. And uh, the people who, now ancient writers, Cicero, many writers talk about books. They had books, they had, but they were all handwritten books. They had often slaves. Uh, there's all kinds of interesting discussion about that, about how that slaves, of course, in the ancient world were sometimes very educated, quite well educated, and they, they were copyists. And so wealthy people had slaves to copy books for them. They had them sent to them. They'd make copies. But probably, you know, churches would have a copy or copies, but the average individual wouldn't have had a personal copy to to walk around with or anything like that. Anyway, they're big scrolls. So uh, they read, they heard the Bible in church, primarily would be. You know, Paul says, give attention to the reading of Scripture to Timothy. What's that about? Well, he's talking about reading it in the church, you know. We don't do as much of that in our church, in churches today, because we have individual Bibles. We don't have to read it, you know, so everybody hears it for the first time. So so we're especially privileged in that particular sense. So let's look first of all at our quiz, because we can't start without a quiz. So uh, the LXX, what's that? 70. What? 70. And what does that stand for? 72 people translated. It is the what translation? What do we call that? Septuagint. So that's the, <laughs> that's sort of the way that that's written many times. That is, if you look at articles by Bible teachers, Bible scholars, they won't say the Septuagint. They'll just say the LXX. And you're supposed to know that that, in that context, is the Septuagint. Well, is that the Latin translation of the New Testament? No. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, remember. The Old Testament. So, the Jews, the Jewish scriptures, were written in the Hebrew language, right? And a small portion in Aramaic, very similar language. 
And then the Jews translated their Old Testament into other languages. Because as Jews spread out around the world, in the Greek world, Alexander the Great, they lived in different places, they, 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 they lost their knowledge of Hebrew. And so for the average Jew, he, he wanted a Bible in his own language, which was Greek universally. And so the Bible was translated beginning around 250 B.C., probably in Egypt, uh, is what we know of, 250 B.C., 250 years before Christ. The Bible was translated into, starting in 250 B.C., translated by Jews for themselves into the uh, Greek language. But of course, when Christians come along, the first Bible they had is the Old Testament. The only Bible Jesus had was the Old Testament. The only Bible that the, the early Christians had was generally the new, was the was the was the Old Testament and the epistles they had, you know, as they were written. But you know, if you lived, uh, if you were a Christian in AD fifty, you didn't have. Galatians was the first epistle Paul wrote, AD 49. So if you were in Ephesus in AD 50, you wouldn't have had, you know, you wouldn't have had Galatians, you wouldn't have had any of Paul's epistles, you wouldn't have had Revelation, or, you know, you, you know, you might have had a gospel, but that's, it was very little written. Your Bible was really still the Old Testament. And so the Septuagint, number two, is commonly quoted in the New Testament. True or false? True, that's true. So that was the Bible of New Testament Christians and New Testament writers. New Testament writers. Sometimes, so we can tell because translation is different. You know, if somebody quotes the ESV in our church and you're looking at your NIV, you say, well, that's a little different. You know, that's, that's not quite, you know. So you can have differences in translations. And so the Septuagint translation can differ some from the Hebrew, and you can tell that, you know, in so uh, you, sometimes the writers of the Old New Testament quote the Hebrew exactly, sometimes the Septuagint exactly. Number three, the papyri were written with uncial letters. Is that not a trick question? Because <laughs> of the script that we have. <laughs> it is true. The papyri that we have are written in that uncial. Uncial means sort of maybe inch high. That sort of capital kind of letter. You remember we looked at capital style letters. So the earliest manuscripts we have were written in a kind of a capital letter, uncial. And then in the ninth century, they developed a kind of a cursive called minuscule. So all the early manuscripts up to the ninth century, all written in a certain kind of script, alphabet. And it's kind of like capital letter writing, you know. So we have the same thing. But I guess they don't teach cursive anymore, right? Uh, so, you know, we can write R. You can read that. I can't write cursive anymore. But, um, so they had cursive in the. It's not that good. Don't worry about it. You know. <laughs> uh, they had cursive writing, but the earliest. Manuscripts were that. Number four, lectionaries were used for reading scripture in church. True. So 
the question about what did they do in church, you know, a lot of times they would copy out portions. You know, if you're, if you, you know, we have a Bible, we got all those genealogies and all that second chronicles and all, you know, we got all that stuff. But, you know, if you're just trying, you know, if you're going to copy out things to read in scripture, you might copy out something from the gospels and, and something Sermon on the Mount and, and something from Paul's epistles, what you would read in church. So those are, that's, we have a lot of those manuscripts that, that were written so people could, could read that in church. So people, somebody could get up and read it. And they'd read something from the Gospels, they'd read something from the Apostles, and then somebody would have some remark, some sermon, something about that in the early church. Five, there are more copies of the New Testament than any ancient classical works. Any, any ancient classical works. Is that true? That's true. That is, that you'd expect that maybe. The Bible is a very important book, and so there are more copies of that than we said Caesar's commentary on the Gallic Wars. That's a very well-known book, read all the way through history until modern times. Our Cicero's dialogue, you know, just all kinds of work. We've, have, we've got all those ancient writers that we read and we learn about ancient history, but they don't. we don't have as many manuscripts of their works as we do the Bible. So the Bible is better preserved. We have much more better preserved uh, copies. Six, the Vulgate was the Bible of the church for a thousand years. True. True. So I remember when I was uh, first saved, I had spent a, I had spent four years in high school studying Latin. I don't know why, but I did. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but you know. And so that was the Roman world. The first century was Rome. Rome was in control of the world. Jesus was born under Caesar Augustus. And I remember my first thought was, you know, this is rather strange. They talk about this Bible having been written in Greek in a Roman world. And Latin is the language of, Ro- of the La- of Roman Empire. Why is that? Well, what I didn't know at the time was that Alexander the Great conquered the world in 300 B.C., 320 B.C., and he spread the Greek language throughout the world. The Romans come along and they conquer the world. They conquer Greece in the 2nd century and then they conquer... Uh, Palestine in the f- first century BC, but they don't replace Greek with Latin right away. So in Paul's day, first century, Rome controls everything. Most people still speak Greek as their universal language. And so Paul could write all his epistles, wrote an epistle to the capital of Rome in Greek, remember. But that changed. We showed that chart beginning around 250 B.C. So the early Christian writers in 150, 200, they wrote to they wrote in Greek. But once they get about 250, 275, they start writing in Latin. Because now Latin, the Roman Latin, is taking over the world, as we'll see. And uh, what is the Vulgate? The Vulgate was the translation of the Bible into Latin. That is the official translation of... Uh, actually sponsored by the Bishop of Rome in around 400 by a guy named Jerome. And so that became the official uh, Bible of the Western Church, of all Western Europe. They spoke Latin. And that continued for more than a thousand years. So 
all the way through church history, when you come to Reformation, all the reformers spoke Latin, wrote Latin. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all, the, all, everything was in Latin. Erasmus, everything was in Latin. So you could go to the University of Paris, you could go to Oxford, you could go to Cambridge, you could go to Germany, and you could study anywhere because Latin was what they taught and spoke everywhere and wrote all their things in. So it was quite revolutionary to translate the Bible into the native language, like Luther translated into German. That was quite unusual because the average person didn't know Latin. The average lay person or just average person on the street or whatever. It was only the higher scholarly classes or our priest, you know, so forth like that. So we're looking at uh, page 18 in our notes. We, we talked about last time about how the Old Testament was translated. And page 18, we're looking at now how the New Testament was trans, transmitted through history. I'll say translated. How the Old Testament was transmitted through history. We talked about the Masoretes and, and all that kind of stuff and how they preserved the Bible. And now the New Testament. Okay, we talked about you know these manuscripts, but how was it transmitted? Um, so, uh, number uh, A here. Before AD 325, I kind of divide this into periods. What's why before AD 325? Because before that time, Christianity was an illegal religion. So Christians uh, were not allowed to practice their Christianity. They did it anyway, but they were persecuted up till about 325. Sometimes severely persecuted. Sometimes not, just depending. But they were persecuted for, you know, 250 years. And it was illegal to be a Christian. And uh, then Constantine, the Roman emperor, uh, you know, he became a Christian. And he allowed Christianity to flourish. Ultimately, he, ultimately Christianity became the dominant religion. It became the legal, the only legal religion. Well, I say the only legal, it, it did. So pagans, eventually paganism, or the pagan gods, were outlawed, but later on, several, a couple hundred years. But 325, because during that period, Christianity is being persecuted. It was outlawed, but the manuscripts that we possess are generally carefully copied by scribes who are well-trained. There's been a lot of recent research on that. Now, what we do know about these scribes is they didn't have very good handwriting. <laughs> kind of like me there, but... They didn't have the best handwriting. So if you look at sometimes these manuscripts, you'll see, you, sometimes you see some of these manuscripts, it looks like they're printed. Their handwriting is so good. You know, the calligraphy is so good. But they didn't have, they, 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 they were very faithful to copy very accurately, we understand what we gather, but from the manuscripts. Uh, but they were still copying. And the truth is, every time you copy a manuscript... <laughs> It's impossible, pretty much, unless you are guided by the Holy Spirit and inspiration, which is not happening. It's impossible to make a perfect copy. There are no two copies of the New Testament that are exactly the same of any length. So no two manuscripts are exactly the same. It's only possible to get exact copies with a Xerox machine. <laughs> you know, and they weren't around then. So, you know, it's very hard. I mean, if you ever tried this, you know, if you try to, if we, if I had, and I've done experiments like this, if we said, let's each one of you copy Matthew chapter 6, I, I would almost bet, if I was a betting man, that 
that would, no, no two copies would be exactly the same. It's just very hard. You'd leave out something, you misspell something, leave it, you know, it's just very hard to copy uh, accurately, you know, unless you can go back and look and then correct, and that's what they did and so forth. So you get differences in the copies of the manuscript during this period. And, and so just remember that. When people say the King James or something is identical to the originals, well, there's no, you know, there's no two, there's no two manuscripts that are exactly the same, you know. So there's variation. There, there's not great variation, but there's some variations in the copies. And by comparing them, we can kind of see what those, where those uh, mistakes came in by copying. Now, B, after Constantine, after Christianity becomes the legal religion, 325 to 1516, we're, we're, we're jumping this whole period up to the Reformation. And then we have the Reformation Bibles and all that. So after the year 300, Greek was mainly only spoken in the eastern part of the empire. Remember we showed this chart last time? So in Paul's day, it was all Greek. In the Apostle Paul's day, it was all Greek everywhere. All that chart was Greek. But Latin eventually began to dominate, and so Greek was confined to a fairly small area and an increasingly small area over time, just around uh, uh, Constantinople, uh, eventually. Um, so um, only in this only in this area did people really copy Greek manuscripts. There wasn't much copying in Rome of Greek manuscripts because people spoke Latin then. The church spoke Latin. Latin that began to dominate. There are more copies of the Latin, there are more Latin manuscripts than there are Greek manuscripts. So we have manuscripts, we're talking about handwritten documents of the Latin Bible. There are more copies of the Latin manuscript than there are Greek. Why is that? Because this whole Western Empire spoke Latin. And so they were copying, you know, Latin, you know, Bibles. So if you come to America and you go to a bookstore, and you're looking for Bibles, you're going to find more English Bibles than anything else. But that's not going to be true in South America necessarily. You're not going to find more English Bibles. You'll find more Spanish Bibles, obviously, there. So, uh, number two, I mentioned over 80% of the known New Testament manuscripts were copied in the East in this red part there and are called the Byzantine text type. However, most of them, most of these are from the late Middle Ages, 9th century, and later. Number three, I'm going to explain this in a second. Although the Byzantine text type is almost identical to the original text today, it's possible to produce the text that's even closer to the original text by using the very earliest manuscripts. Now, I'm throwing out this word Byzantine because you're going to hear it later on. So, when you look at all the copies, remember we said there's about 5,300 copies of the, of the New Testament, right? Available. If you look at that copies, they kind of fall into categories. That is, they're all the New Testament, but some agree with each other more than others. They fall into kind of groups. And so, uh, and, and, and they're different. They call them text types or groups. So they have similarities. Now, they're all the New Testament, and these are minor differences, but still... Some, some, you can tell this, this, this manuscript is probably copied from one just like it, just like it, just, you know. So, uh, so scholars use these kinds of words like Alexandrian, Western, 
Byzantine. So eventually, they kind of sort of standardized the text. We talked about the Masoretic text in the Old Testament. The Masoretes sort of standardized the Hebrew text. And that's what happened over time. In the Greek world, they sort of standardized to this Byzantine text type. And I just said it's possible today because of early manuscripts we have to probably get even closer than the Byzantine text type. So the King James is based on sort of that Byzantine text type. And the NIV and the ESV are not. And that, that accounts for some of the differences. And we'll look at some of those a little later here and see why sometimes there's a slight difference in that. So don't get all excited about this. I know you, I, can see, I can see the excitement in your faces out there. But uh, just I just want to introduce that word Byzantine text type because we're going to hear that with the King James and all that kind of stuff. All right, let's talk about 1516 to 1633. The establishment of the Textus Receptus. Textus Receptus is a Latin phrase, we'll see, for received text or the common text. It's like Masoretic text in the Old Testament. We talk about the received text in the Old Testament. We say the MT, the Masoretic text. And so this became what became the received text, the Textus Receptus. Okay, one. With the establishment of printing press, remember... Gutenberg, around 1450, something like that. Uh, with the establishment of the printing press, the copying of the biblical text by hand came to an end. Gutenberg invented that movable type printing so you could make copies of a book that were identical. You know, uh, you just keep turning out pages and turning out pages and turning out pages. And so Gutenberg produced, the first book he produced, whole book, was the Bible. And what language is that Bible in that he produced? Latin, because that's what people read. They read their Bible in Latin. He produced a Latin Vulgate. The Vulgate means the common version of the Bible. Number two. So we're talking about the Greek New Testament because, remember, the New Testament was written in Greek. So we're talking about the transmission of of the Greek New Testament. How did it transmit down through time? Alright? So, what about the Greek New Testament? It got printed too, because it's being copied by hand. Number two, the first printed Greek New Testament was produced by Cardinal Francisco Zimenez de Cisneros of Spain in 1514. Now, he's a cardinal. He didn't exactly do it himself by hand, but he's getting the credit. He's, he had a lot of people working for him in Spain and so forth. Uh, it was not published, though it was printed off the press. The New Testament came off the press in 1514. It didn't get published. That is distributed, you know, distributed for sale until 1520 because they had to get the Pope's approval. So in certain countries in Western Europe, the church had a lot of control, tremendous control. And Spain was a very Catholic country. And so they, even though this cardinal was doing it, he had to get the Pope's approval to print this uh, New Testament. Now, it wasn't exactly a New Testament. As I say here, it was actually uh, a complete Bible called the Complutensian Polyglot. Complutensian is a Latin name for the city where it was done and polyglot means many languages 
So it wasn't just the Greek New Testament. It had the Greek and the Latin in the New Testament and the Old Testament, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So there's a picture of the Complutensian polyglot. And here's the Old Testament. The Old Testament on the left here, here is the Hebrew, and here is the Latin in the middle, and there's the Greek, the Greek Old Testament. What's that Greek Old Testament called? The Greek translation of the Old Testament? What? No, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Septuagint. <laughs> well, we won't deduce, take any points off your final score, okay? So, this was a Bible, and the main interest of the Bible was the Latin. But there it is in the center. And notice what I say here. Uh, the Old Testament had the Hebrew, Latin, and Greek in parallel columns. And here's what they said. The Latin in the in the center, just as Jesus was hung between two thieves. So the Roman Catholic Church believed that the Latin was the inspired, authorized text. It was better than the Greek. As I say here, uh, the main concern of this work was the Latin translation, not the Greek text. After 1054, split of the church between east and west, the western church did not completely trust Greek manuscript. So think it now. Here's what happened. Remember, you got the church and uh, Constantine in 300. He he becomes a Christian and improves the church. And eventually, the, the Roman Empire is so big that you kind of split the Roman Empire into two sections: the East and the West. And there's an emperor in the East, and there's emperors in the West. And the church, sort of the Roman, the, the bishop of Rome, he's trying to say, "I'm the head guy." listen to me but there is a bishop, an archbishop a, a patriarch in Constantinople in the east and he's saying hey so uh, there's this rivalry that goes on between the west and the east for a lot of years and finally in 1054 they split and go their separate ways so today we have the Roman Catholic Church in the west, western Europe and the east we have the Orthodox churches, the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Orthodox, all those so-called Orthodox churches are split here in 1054. Now, they're very similar in doctrine, not exactly. I mean, the Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't have a pope, a supreme you know, leader who speaks ex-cathedra without era and so forth like that, but they have patriarchs and so forth, more decentralized leadership. So, they were producing this Complutensian polyglot. They were producing here the Vulgate, the inspired text, but they're interested in scholarship. They know the Vulgate in the Old Testament is translated from the Hebrew. So they give you the Hebrew, and they also give you the, the Greek here, too. The Greek, because it's very popular, the Greek Septuagint. But they say, Jesus hanging between two thieves, because it's the Latin that's really the most important. Because Jews... They're just the lowest people in the world. I mean, anti-Semitism is just tremendous in, in Europe at this time. The Jews were hated, despised. And the Western church here in Spain, they despise the Greek church. They despise... So the Greek church is using that Greek Septuagint. 
So I say only 600 copies were ever printed because of expense. Its influence was limited in comparison to what we have next, Erasmus editions. So number three, the first published. Now, so does, you notice that number two says the first printed. So that Complutensia polyglot was this big, thick thing, expensive. I mean, it would be tens of thousands of dollars in the day's money. But uh, it was printed, but it wasn't distributed, published till 1520. But in 1516, this fellow named Erasmus, this Roman Catholic priest, humanist Desiderius Erasmus, he was from he was a Dutchman of Holland. He produced a Greek, a Latin Greek edition himself in 1516. So Erasmus was a very famous scholar in 1500, and he has a lot of discussions with Luther. Luther and Erasmus go back and forth. Luther was a Roman Catholic priest. Erasmus was, but Luther left the church, left the Roman Catholic Church, and you know, justification by faith, and started the Reformation. Erasmus Erasmus believed there were a lot of problems in the church, in the Roman Catholic Church, and he made fun, and he satirized a lot of things in the Roman Catholic Church, but he never left the church. He defended the church, and so forth, against the attacks of Luther and others. So Luther and Erasmus had famous battles about the bondage of the will, the will and all kinds of other issues. So here's Erasmus, 15, 1466, but a very brilliant guy, and uh, we know a lot about him because people in that day, when they wrote letters, they always made copies of their letters. That's always that's always from the, from ancient times, right from the first century on. If you if you if you study anything about writers, ancient writers, politicians, uh, whatever educated people, when they wrote a letter to somebody, they would make a copy of that letter. Erasmus made copies of all his letters, and he published them in, in in his own time. He published his letter and the response, and we still have them today. You can go to the seminary library and they're actually translated into English and read Erasmus's letters and those who responded to him. Now that's an important point about that because it makes me really confident that Paul made copies of every letter he wrote. You don't write a letter to these crazy Corinthians Unless you make a copy, because they've already, you know, they're already disputing what you say in your letters. I'm sure he made copies of every letter he wrote to uh, to every church to have, you know. So his letters would have been easily collected. That's an important point. So here's the Rasmus. Now, I've recently found out some information. I know this guy was a brilliant guy, but he was kind of ahead of his time. And I found this the other day on the internet, and so. You know, Steve Jobs has got nothing on this guy, you know. So here is his uh, Latin Greek New Testament. Now his goal, I say, was to beat Cardinal Zimenez to the press, which he did. That is, he published his four years before the other was distributed. His main concern was to publish his Latin translation. Now there it is. We credit we credit uh, Erasmus with his Greek New Testament because it's the first printed Greek New Testament. It's studied by people like Luther and all the reformers and they're studying this and they're translating the Bible into English from this. So it's very important, you know. But 
his main concern, when you read what he says, is the Latin translation. Why would he be concerned about that? Because most people didn't know Greek. Very few people knew Greek. Greek only starts coming into Europe about this time. Uh, and what he was interested in was the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate was translated in the year 400. And now we're 1,100 years later. Latin has changed. It's hard to understand. And he wants he, he thinks he wants to polish the Latin translation and make it better Latin. So he has so his Latin translation is a revision of the Vulgate. Uh, here is his uh, fifteen sixteen edition, um, and you can see his Latin Greek New Testament. So he's got his Greek, his Latin on this side, his Greek here. So he's interested in publishing that Latin translation, kind of an updated Vulgate, but he has the Greek there so you can verify, hey, I'm not just sucking this out of my thumb. This is really what the text really says in the original, if you know Greek, you know. But most people who bought the copy were really interested in that Greek printed edition, because now you have access to a, a printed Greek text, you know, and so it becomes very, very popular uh, so uh, I say the Greek was only for the purpose of confirming the Latin. Uh, you can see a closer look at it right there. The Greek on the left and the Latin on the right. Here's a page from... Uh, so how did he do this? How did Erasmus do this? He had to do it very quickly. Uh, did he sit down and write out a Greek New Testament that he just, okay, I'm going to make my own Greek New Testament from the manuscripts I have. I'm going to take these manuscripts. He, he didn't have time for that. He just took a manuscript. Here's Codex 2, an actual Greek handwritten manuscript, and he sent that to the printer and said, here it is. And he made notes in the margin about where he wanted changes. So he used one manuscript, and he looked at others and made certain changes, and sent that to the printer and said, here, print this. And that's what they did. Now, unfortunately, when they printed it, they made all kinds of errors in his first edition, <laughs> printing it quickly. In fact, sometimes they didn't even follow what Erasmus said. Some of the printers were very educated, and they thought they knew better than It's a whole story. But anyway, they printed this thing, and it becomes quite, quite popular. Uh, I don't know why my uh, thing is not working there. Uh, so let's look at that. Uh, the Greek text was hastily put together. Erasmus had only eight manuscripts of the New Testament. And none of these contained the entire New Testament. Three of the seven contained the Gospels, three Acts, five contained the Apollo Epistles. So uh, he didn't have many manuscripts compared to what we have today. So remember I said we've got about 5,300 that we have in our possession. There's more actually have that we've known about before. But he only had eight. So it's possible to produce a more accurate Greek New Testament with more manuscripts than it is that Erasmus had. He only had eight. And for the book of Revelation, he only had one. Well, unless that was a perfect copy, you know, he, <laughs> there's nothing to compare it with. And as I say here, it lacked the last six verses. It lacked the last page. So he translated those from the Latin back into Greek. And he created readings that are not found in any known Greek manuscript. 
None of his manuscripts were early in the 11th century. So the year 1000, the earliest manuscript he had, you know, was, was 1000. Most of them were later, 13, 1400. So he didn't have early, he didn't have the earliest manuscripts. We have much earlier ones. So we can produce something a little more accurate than Erasmus produced with his Greek New Testament. Um, I say here, because of this limited manuscript evidence, the text contains several errors. For instance, Revelation 20.12. So, here's Revelation 20.12 in the King James Version. And I saw the dead and small and great stand before God, but your NIV, the ESV, the New American Standard, just any translation you want to name pretty much. And I saw the dead, great, and small standing before the throne. Well, I mean, that's pretty much the same thing. If you're standing before the throne of God, you're standing before God, but it's a different word. How did that happen? How did that happen? Well, it happened because the word God and throne, when they're written in a manuscript, are very, very similar. So, the word God is theos, and the word throne is thronos. But notice, they begin with a theta, that letter, T-H, and they end in an S. And so, in writing manuscripts, when they write God, they write T, a theta sigma with a line over top of it, right? And when they write throne, they write theta sigma without any line. Well, you can see what can happen. If somebody forgets to put the line, you know, you know, or somebody puts the line when it's not there, you see what happens. So here's what we have. There are 304 Greek manuscripts of Revelation. One of them has God there. All the rest of them have thrown. So it just happened that Erasmus had that one. He had one manuscript of Revelation, and the one he had had God there. Well, it actually had Theta Sigma, you know. It had Theta Sigma with the line over it. So you see what's going on there? So that's how you can have differences in Bibles sometimes because of something like this. But most everybody agrees, no, what what John originally wrote there was Thronos, Throne, because all the other Greek manuscripts have that particular reading. So I say he also added material from the Vulgate uh, and Acts 9.6. So Erasmus didn't have many manuscripts and he thought he knew better in some places and he thought the Latin Vulgate was more correct sometimes than these Greek manuscripts and he changed, so he, he added things. He was criticized because his first and second editions didn't contain the famous heavenly witness passage. 1 John 5, 7, 8, 8. So, if you look at the King James Version, you'll have this whole thing. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear record, bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. So, the words in brackets are in the King James Version. But he didn't have that in his first edition, in his second edition. He had what we have in our Bibles today, NIV say. For there are three that bear record, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. 
See that? That's what you have in your NIV, ESV, New American Standard. There are three that bear record, the Spirit, the Water, and the Blood, and these three agree in one. He didn't have that. In his first edition, he had five editions in his second edition. But he was criticized because he didn't have that. Uh, I say on page 20, he said he would include that if it was proven that a Greek manuscript contained it. He said, now, why, 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 why were people so upset about this? People were really upset. People in the Roman Catholic Church were upset. Well, because you could use this kind of verse to prove some, a doctrine, right? Uh, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. See, that would be kind of a Trinitarian passage, maybe, right? So... You, people would appeal to that and say, hey, there is a trinity. Here it is. And the Roman Catholic Church said, hey, you're taking the trinity out of the Bible. Now, actually, and it's kind of a side note, this verse is not really exact proof of the trinity. Uh, yeah, it's, it's how you interpret it. You can interpret it as trinitarian. You can, tr- you can interpret it as anti-trinitarian. In fact, anti-trinitarians use this passage because if we would understand it if it was part of the text as to say and these three are one being one essence because the trinity member is three persons three persons in one divine essence one being one one god but there are people called oneness pentecostals you ever heard of these oneness pentecostals they deny the trinity T.D. Jakes people like that others a lot of there's been people who've denied the Trinity all down through the ages. And they appeal to this verse. Because they say, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one person. One person. So the those who deny the Trinity say, there's only one person. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're just different manifestations. They're just different modes of operation. It's called modalism in the early church. So there's not three different persons. There's only one person. He just appears. And that's a rather strange doctrine when one person is talking to himself. You know, Father is talking to the... <laughs> but anyway, that's what oneness people believe. They believe... Uh, they're anti- so there are anti-Trinitarian groups. and they, So the verse is not an absolute proof. You have to interpret it, you know, to make it work for the Trinity. But it was used, and people were upset. So he said... I'll, I'll, I'll put it in my third edition if you can come up with a manuscript. And a 16th man, century manuscript was produced. Now, wait a minute. 16th century? We're in the 16th century. So the suspicion is somebody wrote a manuscript for him and said, here is a manuscript, a Greek manuscript. But it's, you know, it's the same time period of Erasmus. We don't know for sure. The earliest known manuscript to contain the passage was produced in the 14th century. But he put it in his third edition. And that third edition, the third edition, was the edition that really spread through Europe. It's the edition, or one after that, that that the King James was translated from. So we'll see that in a second. All right. Uh, Dr. Combs? Yes. So the, the King James Version is based on the TR. Uh, of so the Greek New Testament, the TR. So, 
you tell me which came first in the King James only controversy, so to speak? Was it? Uh, did they originally say it had to be supernatural inspiration, or did they say, "Holy smokes, we have one TR in all of these other manuscripts that you know actually are better," and then they had they were forced because of that evidence to say it was supernatural. Let's wait. I'm going to get okay, to that. Right. I'll, I'll get to that because there, there's a lot of issues that you just raised there. But okay. we'll, and, and ask me again when we. I got a section on the King James how to start. All right. So uh, number four, Erasmus was text was reprinted with corrections by many others. Now that's something that uh, Troy just alluded to the Texas Receptus. Erasmus produced five Greek New Testaments. None of them agree with each other. They're all different. Now not not thousands of differences, but hundreds of differences. There are, and I say down on number five, there are 30 editions of the TR. So when somebody says, okay, I believe the TR is the correct text, well, which TR are you talking about? You see, that's the, that's the problem. And I once asked a King James question, David Cloud, that question. I said, David, you say the TR is the, is the inspired and errant text. Which TR? He says, the one that agrees with the King James Version. The one that, so really it's the King James that's inspired, not the Greek text. Whatever the TR says is, is really the one that agrees with the King James is really right. Okay, so I'm just saying here that Erasmus had his third edition. Others came along and just reprinted what he did with certain changes and corrections. A guy named Robert Estian produced four editions. Um, now his fourth edition is noteworthy in that it had the text divided into numbered verses for the first time. So that's an important little Greek New Testament there. Because up until 1551, there were no verses divisions. There were chapter divisions. Chapter divisions were put in in the 13th century. And the Latin Vulgate, the Latin Bible had chapter divisions, but no verse divisions. The first verse divisions were 1551 by a guy who printed a Greek New Testament, Stephanus or Robert Estian. And then that was put into an English Bible in 1560. We'll see that later on. The Geneva Bible, 1560, you know, 50, 61 years before the King James, verse divisions. Then a guy named Theodore Beza, who was the disciple of John Calvin and took over in Geneva for Calvin. He's a famous theologian, John Theodore Beza or Beza sometimes is pronounced. He produced nine editions. Now, you say, what are these editions? They're just recopying Erasmus. They're very similar. We all call we call them TRs, Texas Receptus, because they're very similar, but they're they're different. They're, they're, and, and they're documented, all the differences are documented. But his 1598 edition was the text used by the translators of the King James Version. Why did they use that? Because that was the current edition. They didn't go back to 1516 to Erasmus because people were updating and printing new, new Greek New Testaments. So the same way today, if we're going to translate a Bible, an English Bible, we use the latest Greek New Testament generally, the most up-to-date version. So the King James translators used Theodore Beza's 1598. It's still the same sort of text, very, very, very similar to Erasmus. 
Then C, Bonaventura and Abraham Elzevir produced seven editions between 1624 and 1678. The second and uh, edition had an advertising blurb that said in Latin, text Amerigo Habes, it just says, therefore your dear reader have the text now received by all in which nothing has changed, in which we give nothing changed or corrupted. But it has those words. You see the word textum. That's the word textus. It's just the accusative case. Textum ergo habes nuc ab omnibus receptum. Textum receptum. That's just like textus receptus. So we have the textus receptus, the received text. So that's where we get the phrase received text. It's like, hey, we got it, brother. We got the original right here. We got the received text. We got the text that everybody uses. It's an advertising blurb. You know, we've got it. This is it. And it's from that textus receptus that we get TR. And we apply it to everything going back to 1516. Now, 1516, it wasn't called the TR. Estian's editions weren't called the TR. Beza's editions weren't called the TR. But we call them the TR because they're all just very, very similar. They're the same, just reprinting of that same Greek testament of Erasmus. So I say number five, the text receptus, or TR, is now applied to all forms of the text going back to Erasmus. 30 editions, with hundreds, if not thousands of differences among them. Now they're not, they're not, they're not as great as you, I might make that, but they're not, they're, no two are exactly the same. But the Textus receptus originally was based on eight Greek manuscripts. So the argument I'm going to make is that you can make a Greek New Testament and therefore an English translation a little more accurate if you use all these manuscripts and produce a more accurate Greek New Testament. But some will say, no, no, the TR is it, man. TR is it. God was in that TR, and if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it was good enough for me. You know. That's a joke. Apostle Paul. All right. D. 1633 to 1831. During this time period, older Greek manuscripts were coming to light, but the TR was still the Greek text being used for translation and use. All translations produced during this time were based on the TR. So there were some English translations. We've already passed 1611, King James. But there are other translations, other languages were used in the TR. E. 1831. Scholars began producing Greek New Testaments making use of the oldest Greek manuscripts. So, in the 19th century, scholars have began looking at all these manuscripts. They start becoming available. More become available. And they produce Greek New Testaments that are using the older manuscripts. This culminated in the work of these two men, Westcott and Hort. They published a Greek text in 1881. And this work became the basis for most modern editions of the Greek New Testament and most modern translations of the New Testament. So their work in 1890 was kind of a seminal work. Now, we've, we've, we've modified that work somewhat because we've got more manuscripts than they had. But they had a lot. They had some important ones. And their edition differs from the Texas Receptus. So uh, translations made from that will differ. Now, these two men are therefore demonized. I mean, the words like Westcott and Hort are like, 
Hitler and Stalin. Because the King James only people, they don't like their Greek New Testament. They don't like Westcott and Hort. They want the Texas Receptus done by a Roman Catholic scholar named Erasmus. You know, it's kind of odd kind of thinking, but but so Westcott and Hort sort of started this 1881, and then more manuscripts were discovered in the late 1800s, early 1900s. The papyri were discovered, but basically uh, we still tend to use their their. Their, their basic work is the basis for all modern editions. All right. Let's talk about uh, the English Bible now. We're finally through with all that bad stuff. <laughs> that Greek and Hebrew and Latin and Septuagint and Vulgate and all that stuff. And let's talk about our English Bibles. Now, remember, there was a time when there was no English language. There was no English language. So we're starting at the beginning of the English language here on page 21. And English is divided, even today, into three major groups. Old English, Middle English, and Modern English. So the Old English are sometimes called Anglo-Saxon period, 450 to 1150. So the earliest remnants of the English language would say we'd go back to, say, about 450. Now, there was no translation of the entire Bible in this period, as I say. Few people could read anyway uh, during this period. Here's a chart of literacy I found. Literacy. So it's down here. You know, here we are, 1475, and it's way down here. Uh, The United States is, uh, I forgot which one it is, the red. So the red is the United States here. It's got a high literacy rate. But some countries are that way down here. They have very low literacy rates. But, you know, if you project this back here, you know, you've got maybe at the most 5, 10% of the population could even read anything. If they read anything in the early period, they read Latin, you know. So there was no translation of the entire Bible during this time, and everything that was translated was done by the Latin Vulgate. Why did they translate from the Latin Vulgate from 1450 to 1150? Because they didn't have any Greek manuscripts, and nobody understood Greek anyway in Europe. I say nobody, practically, in Western Europe. Western Europe was all Latin speaking. Latin was the dominant language of scholarship, of education, of anything. So the Bible, the Latin Vulgate, the Latin Bible was the Bible. So if they translated into English, they were going to translate from Latin what they what they knew. I say here the first known work from this period was in history. He's called a herdsman named Cagman, who written various portions of Genesis, Exodus, Daniel's into poetry in the seventh century. These poems were Bible stories that could be memorized. So. He would take verses from the Bible and he would put them in poetic form so they could be easily be memorized by common people and so forth. I say other translators include, I got a list here, Adhelm, Bishop of Sherborne, the Psalms, Egbert, Bishop of York, translated Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now he wasn't translating this for the common people. Remember the common people didn't weren't literate and so forth. A guy named the Venerable Bede. He's got this epithet of Venerable Bede because he's a very famous British-English guy and just 
most educated guy of his day, and he's called the Venerable Bede. He was the greatest scholar in the 8th century. He said he's supposed to have translated the Gospel of John, supposedly. A king got into it. He promoted culture and literacy. He translated Exodus 21 through 23. Now, why would he translate Exodus 21 through 23? Because that's the law. That's the Ten Commandments. If I want you peons out there to know anything, I want you to know the law. You know, I want you... <laughs> he wants these servants and these uh, average person out there, these serfs, to know the law. So you have a number of these. There's also something called interlinear glosses. Some Latin Bibles contain glosses in Old English written between the lines. Uh, very famous of this is the Lindisfarne Gospels. Here they are. So there are some Gospels that were produced by this monastic community on the monastery of Lindisfarne. It was on an island off of England there. And they produced Gospels, but somebody came along later in 950 and wrote English in interlinear kind of in, in the lines there you know old English so that's old English there's not much there few people could read middle English the middle period 1150 to 1475 with the Norman conquest of England in 1066 the Anglo-Saxon language was changed by French influence the change was so great that eventually the old, old English translations would have been unintelligible to most people there was little interest in the French English translation of the Bible since the ruler spoke French. So in 1066, William, uh, William from France came over and conquered England. And England was ruled by really Frenchmen. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't until his grandson that the the grandson of William conquered that the English court actually spoke English anymore. They spoke French for a couple of generations there because they were Frenchmen who invaded, invaded England and conquered England. And that's where we get our French influence into the English language from this conquest. So there was no really translation. I say B portions were translated in the earliest period, but no completed Bible was produced until the end of this period when the language had stabilized. As in the Old English period, page 22, all translation work was from the Latin Vulgate, because that's what people understood. We finally get to the end of this period, and we get a guy named John Wycliffe. Well, there's Old English. I forgot to put that up. Here's what Old English looks like, John 3.16 in Old English. Well, I don't know what you do with that. I got a damn down. What? I got that down. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like a different language, isn't it? But it's supposed to be English. Old English. So King James English is not really old English. No, it's not. I forgot William the Conqueror here. And here's John Wycliffe, 1380, But I see we're out of time, so uh, we'll stop here. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week, all right? Thank you very much.